Welcome to the Solus Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out solaschurch.com. Ephesians chapter 5. And as you're turning there, I'm inviting my buddy uh, Dan Morels coming up to lead us in our scripture reading. And once you've found your spot there, if you would stand with Dan and I this morning for the reading of God's word. Ephesians 5.22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he may sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he may present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we, we come into this moment, hearing your word, standing in reverence to your word, now with Bibles open and hopefully hearts open to seek to receive your word. And here's what we recognize today, God, that that this truly is your word, that you are speaking. You have spoken and by your spirit, you have stuff to say to us today through your word. And we, God, do not want to miss that opportunity. Your word gives life. Your word cleanses us. Your word renews us, God. Your word saves us. And so today, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would soften our hearts, open our ears to be able to hear what you have to say, but ultimately make room in our hearts, God. Do that work that only you can do for us to be truly transformed by what you have to say. God, I come into this space with a a teaching like this and a a subject like this uh, just as a fellow learner seeking to be more like you and also, God, hungry for you to speak today. That's my desire, Lord, that you would be present and that you would be at the center of this time of study. Um, We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would speak very clearly to each one of us today through the study of your word. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Alrighty. Well, we've taken the better half of, uh, or really better portion of this whole year uh, to walk through the book of Ephesians as a church. Um, It's kind of appropriate because this book was originally a letter written to a church a lot like ours, a young church 
that was seeking to be faithful in faithless times. Um, and that's what Ephesians is, is really all about. It's the Apostle Paul writing as Pastor Paul to a young church that he has a great big heart for. And he's writing to them, really seeking to encourage and exhort them to remain in Jesus, to not leave their position, to not live from any other identity except for who they are through what Christ has done. And every week as we've been going through Ephesians, you guys know the, the, the song and dance by now. Every week as we go through Ephesians, we've been looking at a different aspect of life in Christ. That's the key preposition in this book, that, that two-letter word, in. Uh, Christ is not just someone to live for, but he's also our Savior that we live in. It's a place we live in and from is the big idea. Uh, and each week, each section kind of gives us a different aspect of what that looks like. And, and here in Ephesians chapter 5, we are getting into um, maybe an unexpected area of life in Christ. Uh, Paul, from chapters 5 all the way to the beginning of chapter 6, is going to be, begin to describe our relationships in Christ, which is, you know, the, the messier part of following Jesus, and certainly not what we naturally think about with our new positions in Christ. We, we think about a lot of the stuff we've talked about. We think about being redeemed and, and being alive and all these different great things that have come into our lives through the gospel. But Paul wants to make it clear the Holy Spirit wants to make it clear that when the gospel begins to work, when the Spirit of God begins to come in and transform things and reorder things, it's going to have an immediate effect on our relationships, especially our closest relationships, the ones that are the most difficult to deal with, which are family, marriage, and work, the workplace. Those are the, the three places that the Apostle Paul is you know, getting all up in our business over. He's like, let's talk about your marriages. Let's talk about your home life. Let's talk about your work life. Uh, and so here in, a, in chapter five, as you might've already noticed, uh, here's the section that we're looking at. This is part two of exploring marriage in Christ. How does being in Jesus inform and even transform how I approach marriage? Well, uh, last week, we took some time to lay a foundation on this. Uh, marriage is certainly a hot topic, uh, we should say a polarizing topic culturally. And so it's important for us, um, uh, not only because of what culture teaches, but also because of what a lot of the church, uh, maybe not teaches, but at least communicates in action, uh, to really have a biblical framework and a, and a really robust foundation in our understanding of what God intended marriage to be. Like, what is marriage all about? How should we think about marriage? And especially with some humility, recognizing that um, we've all experienced some form of, of brokenness in this area. Whether directly or indirectly, whether personally or interpersonally, marriage is a, is a sensitive topic. It's not just a concept. It's something that a lot of us are seeking to really work out personally, maybe as single people, or, or we're seeking to work it out as, as married people. In a lot of ways, it involves a, a lot of healing, a lot of, a lot of renewal. And so uh, we, we need to bring that to the Lord as we're learning these things. And so 
Uh, last week, here was the foundation, and I thought, you know what, let me, before moving on, give just a quick uh, recap of the big ideas of what Paul is teaching here in Ephesians 5. In Ephesians 5, Paul basically communicates these four essential things about the marriage relationship. The first thing we'll recognize is that marriage, biblically, is a theological thing. Marriage is theological, meaning it has to do with the mind and the things of God. Contrary to our culture, wherein marriage is both everything at the center of pop culture and movies and media, and yet nothing at the same time, nothing substantial, nothing concrete, kind of whatever with whoever, however however long you want it to be, uh, Scripture speaks into that, and, and we even see Jesus responding to questions about marriage by submitting to a higher authority. When Jesus is questioned about divorce, for example, he does the same thing the apostle Paul does. When someone comes to him and says, Jesus, you know, what do you think about marriage, essentially? Jesus, Jesus goes, well, what does the Bible say? What, what does scripture teach? What, what does, in other words, God have to say? Because marriage is a theological reality. It's something that God has created. It's something that's conceived in his very heart and mind. Even before the fall of man, we see marriage um, functioning in this world. So it's a theological reality. It's not whatever we want it to be. It's whatever God defines it to be. So it's also a, recognize this, once we see it's theological, we study the scriptures, we see that marriage is covenantal. It's a covenantal thing. It's certainly not nothing. It isn't, marriage isn't a piece of paper. Marriage isn't kind of like a necessary thing we have to do, well, because this or that. Marriage is a a, a richly, covenantal relationship, a richly covenantal reality. And we talked about the difference between a covenant relationship and a consumer relationship, whereas a consumer, the relationship is only as important as your needs being met, but a covenant relationship looks a lot like the way that God commits to us and walks with us despite our bad hair days and our imperfections. The relationship is held up to the highest value. It's not just our love that maintains our commitment, But in covenant, it's your commitment that sources your love. It's a binding commitment. And again, go back. You can listen to next week and see all the reasons why being bound together in marriage as a husband and wife is the best case scenario for any couple. All right, that was last week. Now, we also saw that marriage is spiritual. When you look into the scriptures, we see that marriage is a spiritual reality, meaning it has to do with, with, it's not just a human uh, endeavor or um, a human partnership. But we see it clearly in Genesis that God is, uh, is like um, deeply involved in Adam and Eve's union. It's, you know, Adam, thank God, wasn't left to himself to find a spouse in the animal kingdom, right? God was heavily involved in bringing the right person to Adam at the right time. And it's something else we need to recognize. The scriptures say that he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. It's a spiritual reality. It's something that God is involved in. And to that, I just say, praise God, Jimmy, because I'm married thanks to the grace of God. I just feel that. I feel that this morning. Today's my wife's birthday, too. I mean, you got to double shout that out. Yeah. So. All right. I'll stop. Um, and then lastly, this is where it brings, what brings us back to Ephesians chapter 5. Marriage is illustrational. It's theological, it's covenantal, it's a spiritual reality, but what Paul says here in Ephesians 5 is really what sums up 
the ultimate why marriage exists in the first place. The ultimate, marriage exists for a lot of great reasons. But the ultimate purpose of marriage, Paul will say, is to be a shadow of a greater reality. This is so important. Lest we make marriage everything like we tend to do in the church. It's everything. No, no, no. It's, it's not nothing. But it's not everything. It's something that points to something greater. That, that's what Paul is saying here in this passage. A, a way to summarize this, Ephesians 5, Dan just read it over us. This is really the big idea of our section today. Paul would communicate this idea about marriage. He would say that marriage, at its best, our marriage relationships in Christ function as a mirror. As a mirror to a greater relationship. The covenant relationship of a husband and wife, at its best, what it's doing is communicating the covenant faithfulness of God to a world that's longing for it. See, I don't know if there's um, a more important or relevant time in history than now for us to take this seriously. That, That our witness through our marriages matter. They matter for eternity, is what Paul is saying. That's certainly more than nothing in regards to how culture views marriage. You know, in a a hookup culture, lust-driven culture, um, most relationships are driven by selfishness and driven by, and, and not even like the worst forms of selfishness, but I mean even like just general root sense of I need something. I'm incomplete, so I run to this or that person. I'm longing for this sort of, fulfillment from this person the christian view of marriage shows up in that and says you'll never find that in marriage (laughs) you'll find something greater covenantal love faithful love despite imperfection and let me tell you that's what this world is really longing for because it points to god who created them so there's something about the power of this that paul thinks we need a whole 12 verses to unpack to really get the weight of this and that's again Ephesians chapter 5, this reality that your and my marriages exist as a, to be a mirror to the world of a greater relationship and a greater reality. I think a good question to ask here is, how's the mirror, right? Um, How's the reflection? How is that true? We know there's all sorts of different kinds of mirrors in the world. There's, some of us, we're familiar in our marriages with, with carnival mirrors, you know. These are mirrors that can distort an image. Maybe for some of us, maybe we're not married, but what we've seen in marriage is is more foggy mirrors. You know, you come out of the shower and there's some form of you on the reflection, but it's it's pretty fuzzy and foggy. It's not reflecting the, the, the image it's intended to be. For others of us, when we think about this concept, we're more familiar with with the shattered mirror. And we've lost a desire for marriage altogether, or we've lost our passion in our marriages altogether because of so much brokenness that we've found. Well, what's so beautiful about this section is we see how the gospel's restoring all of that. And, and I just want to say today, regardless of where you are at in relationship to these things, there is some good thing that God wants to do in your life. And it's always involving rebuilding. It always involves a greater level of trust. It always involves a greater level of healing and redemption. When we come to God with whatever broken pieces we have, whatever fuzzy mirror we have, we're placing placing those things in the most capable hands, saying, God, would you work? Would you move? Would you redeem? Would you restore? And that's what 
really Paul is, is getting at. Jesus wants to transform this reality. So let's see the ways that he's seeking to do that. Here's a, the big question of Ephesians 5. If there's a single question that Paul is answering in this chapter, or rather in this section, it's this question. In what ways is Christ mirrored in the marriage relationship? If that's what marriage exists to be, kind of a witness to the world of the covenant love of God and a world longing for that, in what ways is Christ mirrored in the marriage relationship? And let's look at a couple of these things that Paul says. Here's the first way that Paul is going to teach, and this is the first, but also it's kind of the main point of the passage. Uh, the first way that Christ is mirrored in the marriage relationship is through, write this down, the ministry of marriage. It's through the ministry of marriage. The first way that Christ is mirrored in the marriage relationship is in the way that a husband serves his wife and the way that a wife serves her husband. Let me um, give some context to what's going on here in this section. Let me tell you, this is a section that needs some context. It's important to um, remember that though the book of Ephesians was written for us, it wasn't written initially to us. There's a background, there's a context, there's a point that Paul is seeking to communicate. Uh, first and foremost, the context of this section, if you remember, is um, basically, listen closely, the context of these verses is a call for Christians to be filled with the Spirit in humble service of one another. So this is Ephesians 5.18. Maybe one day we'll do a, a couple weeks study on it. We'll see what happens. I don't know, maybe a week or two. Just kidding. We spent two months studying this verse, okay? Ephesians 5.18 is where Paul says, don't be drunk with wine. Don't be under the influence of anything physical or anything other than, than God. Be filled, be empowered, be led by the Holy Spirit, the, the kind of life that we're all after, a life directed and guided by the Spirit of God. Then, then Paul goes on in, in the next few verses to describe what that's going to look like. It's going to look like Spirit-filled worship. It's going to look like gratitude. That's what the, a Spirit-filled life leads to. And then he says it's going to look like this, submitting to one another in the fear of God. A life that's filled and empowered with the Holy Spirit approaches relationships differently. No longer do I approach a relationship above you thinking, what can you give me? But the new approach is, I so put myself under you and esteem you so much more highly than me. This is the, what the gospel does. This is what Christ did for us. Philippians 2 says, have this same mindset, that, that so being filled with the Spirit, you, you go, how can I serve this person? That's the context. Now, I mean, that's like all fine and dandy when I think about how that applies to a stranger, you know? It's like, I can do that, you know? Love others. Filled with the Spirit, humble yourself under others. Just others, you know, whoever others are. But it's easy when I think about just randos in the category of others, random people, all right? It's easy to think about others as like, you know, the, the, the stranger that I pass on the street or just kind of my acquaintances. Okay, so to be filled with the Holy Spirit in humble service, it looks like serving that person. But Paul doesn't let us get away with that, that sort of religious behavior checklist thing. Because when Jesus comes to transform your life, he doesn't do it from the outside in. He begins right at home. He changes us from the inside out. And so he's like, okay, be filled with the spirit and, and live a life in service to others. And then he takes that into the three most familiar, difficult places, the, the three hardest places to do that. 
you filled with the Spirit in service to your family? Are you filled with the Spirit in, in, in service to your spouse? Are you filled with the Spirit in service to your coworkers? See, look, that's where the rubber meets the road. Not sort of Christian thing you can do, but see, the gospel doesn't just deal with what we do. It deals with who we are. And nothing confronts who we are. Like family. Like our spouses. When I say confronts who we are, maybe a better word is exposes who we are. So this is where, where Paul is like, this is what we're getting into. Paul's like, this is where the gospel must transform. Because this is where Christ, as he works, is going to be most reflective in the most meaningful ways. So, so, so that's the context. The context, again, is a husband and wife filled with the Spirit in service to one another. I want to point out before we get into this passage, the context here is, is not what to do in a, an abusive relationship. Okay? The context here is a Christian marriage. If you are in an abusive relationship, you should seek help. You should seek counsel. You should seek the help of the church is what Matthew 18 says. The, the context here in this section is two individuals, uh, goes without saying, who are unbelievably imperfect, but are seeking to serve one another in love in such a way that it reflects Christ. Is that clear? Okay. Here's what Paul has to say to them. Paul's going to speak to the wives. And then he's going to speak to the husbands about how their ministry can reflect Christ. And I, and I want to take a page, literally, out of Jim Gallagher's book. Um, and every time I say Jim, Pastor Jim Gallagher's name from Calvary Vero, I, I have to stop myself from saying Jim Gaffigan's book because it's not the same person. He, Jim Gaffigan has his own things to say about marriage. Um, Jim Gallagher, who's a, a pastor friend mentor of mine up in Calvary Vero, who actually spoke. How many of you guys came to our marriage conference? Actually, a little over a year ago, a handful of you guys. Him and his wife, Christy, wrote a great book called Always about the concept of marriage. And one of my favorite things that he points out in his teaching in his book is, is who the next few verses are addressed to matters. That's the big idea. So, so for example, uh, verses 22 through 24 begins with what word? It's one word. Verse 22 begins with what word? Wives. So Jim would say, this husband, stop, this is not your male. Stop reading. Okay? I love that. This, don't read someone else's mail. This is not for you to hold up and go, hey, check us out, all right? This is from Paul, all right? No, it's not for you to do that. That would be really weird if a husband did any of the things I just did. But um, Paul speaks first to the wives. The mail is directed to them. And here's what Paul says. Let's unpack this. Paul says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife. This is a key descriptor as also Christ is the head of the church informs the previous reality and he is the savior of the body christ therefore just as the church is subject to christ so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything so paul begins with remember he's calling us to reflect christ in our marriages so the way that that a marriage can mirror the gospel is in, in the way that a wife here's the wife's ministry to her husband it says here the, the, the word submit literally means to put herself under his authority or to subject herself under his leadership sacrificially and willingly to honor him as, notice this, head. This is an easy thing to talk about, trust me, okay? It should be, though, to some degree, if we understand what biblical headship is intended to be. Now, the word headship, that idea, that whole concept, 
that, that whole idea about authority structures, leadership structures, it's certainly, it's kind of like a dirty word in our culture. It can conjure up images of becoming a doormat. It can conjure up images of power and subjugation and abuse. Um, and the reason why that is the case is because a lot of times, well, well it's just history. We're, we're very familiar with people in positions of power leveraging their power to abuse those under them to get something selfishly. So we can almost cringe at any idea of authority. There's a lot of cultural conversation around this. And, and we can almost be, almost like, um, have a posture of neglect altogether towards authority because of all the forms of abuse that it comes in. Namely, often, especially in marriage, you have boys occupying the role of a man. And little boys don't use their power in service to others. <laughs> it's all about conquering and dominance and I have the power. Do you know what I mean? Like even when I, when I put like even my daughters, when I put them in, in like when I put Evie in charge of Penny for like a second. Ten times out of ten, I should say nine to be gracious. 9.9 .9 times out of ten. That doesn't end in Penny's benefit through Evie using her authority in loving service for Penny. It ends in them fighting and Penny crying usually, unfortunately. Praise God. Um, but, and, and this is what for most of us, this is what we're familiar with. We mostly, maybe we can say, have poor examples of boys in the roles of men using their authority selfish leverage okay and let me say this nothing could be farther from the biblical concept of headship i want you to see who the correlation of male headship is the husband is the head of the wife notice this as christ is the head of the church do, do we see that image do we see that that standard paul here in ephesians 1 is calling from, or sorry, Ephesians 5, he's calling back to chapter 1, which this church would have been hearing this letter in, in one sitting, and they, they probably immediately went back to Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul's reminding the church that, that Christ has been elevated to such a high place that God has put all things under his feet, and God gave Christ to be, what's the word? One more time, what's the word? To be head, authority, leader over all things. Now, New King James and the ESV both say to the church, but we can read past that missing. The point that Paul is making is that, is that, the, that Christ's headship is a gift to the church. That's the context. So here's NLT, once in a blue moon gets it right, and says this. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things, notice this, for the benefit of of the church. Let's just kind of by a, a personal recognition here. How many of us, let's do it by a show of hands, have been personally benefited because Jesus is your leader? <laughs> That's the vision. He's head over all things. Listen closely. Biblical headship, it's not about control, it's about covering. It's not about power, it's about protection. Biblical headship is, is not about bullying and leveraging, it's about blessing. It's positioned for the sake of the good of the other. It's what leadership is intended to be, whether in the home, in the church, in society. Leadership exists as a public or private service. 
And Jesus taught his disciples this, like, yo, if you're going to be leaders of churches, if you're going to be leaders of other disciples, you better get the whole cultural idea of leadership and headship out of your minds. The way the Gentiles lead, that's not how you do it. In fact, I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to wash your feet. I'm going to model what true leadership looks like. It looks like something that exists for the good of the other. I'm using, listen, I see power and responsibility as something to steward, not leverage. As something to serve, how can I serve others with what God has given me humbly under his power and under his authority? Now, Paul's giving that context. He's, he's speaking to husbands and wives. He, he gives a vision for how the husband as the leader of the household is to lead the way that Christ has led. There's this leadership structure, this, this sort of like order of things that God establishes. And then he calls wives to serve their husbands by acknowledging, affirming, and honoring that God-given role. To honor that. Now, it's interesting, like the vision I just gave of, of humble leadership, that's, isn't that much, e- by the way, can we just say this? Isn't that much easier to follow and submit to? It's much, I mean, submission, no matter what, I almost said, you know, it stinks, okay? Submission is hard. It's not something we run to. It's not something we prefer, unless it's our own desires. <laughs> we don't often submit naturally or willingly. But when, when the leadership is strong, when I trust that that leader has my best interests at heart, I'm willing to follow and lead. I mean, Jesus is a great example of that. We're called to submit to him, yet... Jesus being the most submittable leader, is that a word? It is today. Jesus being the most submittable leader doesn't equal my constant submission. And and so the call here, I want you to notice this, of both respect and honor to the husband and the love and sacrifice for a wife, the idea of that, that those two ideas of submit and love, submission and love, is that they are to exist mutually exclusive of one another. That's what Paul's communicating. I don't, I don't love my wife. I'm not to love her because she honors me. Like that's the fuel for my love. And nor am I to, to put myself under my husband's leadership because he's perfectly loved me. The idea is that they're, they're to exist mutually exclusive of one another. And we even see that in the language here. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Notice this, it's a call to worship as to the Lord. So if, if Christ has established a, a biblical order in the, in the home and in your home and he calls the husband to leverage his leadership for the benefit of the family and for you, no matter what, your honor of him in that role is going to require sacrifice and worship. Even if he was Jesus. Which he, I don't need to tell you, he's not. He ain't that guy, pal. That's not, Okay. It's going to require a level of worshipful submission. God, I'm going to do this as unto you. This is my worship to you, Lord, to be faithful, to reflect you. Uh, Notice this next, like, here's an interesting next part. So now he speaks to the husbands, okay? Um, So this is for the husbands. This is your male. And I want to say, like, with the dirtiness that submission carries, like, if this passage can seem demeaning to women, which it shouldn't be because submission doesn't uh, uh, translate to inequality. Christ submitted to the Father. He wasn't any less than the Father. 
it's about role and responsibility. That's an important distinction. Okay. Now, if this passage seems demeaning to women, let me say that it's devastating to men. Where, where it might be offensive to be called to submit, it's, I would argue it may be more offensive to be told that you should die. Maybe for some of us, we're like, no, because I'd rather die than submit. And that's, that's fair. Context here is two individuals filled with the Spirit seeking to serve one another in love. The way that the wife can reflect Christ to the world is through her sacrificial service and, and recognition of her husband's leadership, coming under his leadership as unto the Lord. The way that the husband is called to lead his wife is in the same way that Christ has led and loved us. Not with mere affection, but with sacrifice. It says it this way, husbands, love your wives. Here's the call now. Just also as Christ, I don't know why I read that so poorly. Just as Christ, excuse me, also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church this is what he's up to in the world there's a moment in time where this will come to a head and not having any spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that he should that she rather should be holy and without blemish what an incredible vision of christ's work in the church as a display of the kind of love that a husband is called to minister unto his wife here's the calling men husbands love your wives as christ loved the church gave himself up for her. You know, it would almost be easier if it said, and literally physically takes a bullet for her. It's like, oh, give myself up like Jesus would die for her? I could, if, the, if it came to it, I could do that. And obviously we know that, that Paul is speaking here not in relation to an event. He's speaking to what's much harder, a lifestyle of self-sacrifice. Uh, this is uh, literally what um, in the Greek is, is known as, you might have heard this in VBS, it's called agape love. C.S. Lewis defines agape love uh, as, as not a matter of affection of feelings in his book, The Four Loves. It's not affection of feelings, but agape love is a steady wish for the loved person's ultimate good. And this is the standard that us husbands are given and how we are to reflect Christ to the world is in how we live for the good of the other in such a way that like Christ, I give of myself. I give of myself. This is how Christ has loved us. We know that, right? He's given himself. He, he, it's not just that he gave gifts. It's not just that he did things. Well, I've given you a great life. The call here is a self-sacrifice in love for the benefit of the other as Christ is the model of that. And notice this next part. I think this is really important. We're to live in such a way that, that our wives are convinced that our end goal is their good. We're to live in such a way that our wives are convinced that our end goal is their good. And there's a lot of imagery here. I think this is literal. I think that like Christ, who will present the church... I believe that husbands will one day present their wives. Maybe not. 
follow me here. There's a calling here to steward your wife, that relationship well, to steward how you love her. And, and, and almost with, with having in mind that one day you'll present her to the Lord and say, God, this is what I've done as a husband. Here's how I've served her. And, and notice the calling there, the way that Christ has served the church. Like we come to him with spots. We come to him with wrinkles. We come to him with sin. We come before God as we are, all of us, falling short of the glory of God. And what does Jesus do for us? He makes us clean. He makes us clean. And I mean like clean, clean. Not pretty clean, not even super clean. He makes us without spot or blemish before him. This is the work of the cross, that by his shed blood, we are cleansed from our multitude of sins. We're clean before him. Jesus told the disciples, you are already clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. A lot of times, this is how it is with God, right? We come to him, we have our mess, we have our dirtiness, we have our sin. We're like, God, here I am. Please make me clean. He's like, you're already clean. I've already bled. I've already died. I've already cleansed you. We confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He calls us and makes us clean before him through the work of the cross. Yet still, we're clean and we're being clean. I, I still need to be cleansed. I still need to be washed. I still need to be sanctified is, is the word here, made holy. And, and God is still up to that. And he's doing it the same way through his word. Isn't that awesome? He's cleaning us with his word. This is how we're cleansed. We're sanctified by his word. His word is truth. His word washes us and redeems us and renews our mind. If you're, if you're like at a point in your life where you're trying to figure out how, how can I get holy, how can I grow in maturity, it's the ministry of the word of God in your life. It's allowing his word to cleanse you. This is an illustration, though, of how a husband is to love his wife. Isn't that interesting? So it's like, I used to always read this from the lens of like, okay, so I need to speak the Bible to my, you know, to, to my family, to my wife. I got to, you know, I'll cleanse her with God's words. And, and um, what convicted me years ago is that it's, it's, it's actually my words that God wants to use. Certainly, hopefully his words. But, but Paul is speaking here about the power of words. And husbands, there, there's power in your words in your ministry to your wife for better or for worse. There's power in your words, in your ministry to your wife, for better or for worse, or for worse. The, the calling here is to reflect Christ and how we minister to one another, how we serve one another with our words. That's the vision. Our ministry to one another reflects Christ. These last two things here are important as well. Paul closes this passage talking about two other ideas. He also talks about our membership with one another and how our membership with one another is also a mirror or a reflection of the gospel. So when we serve one another, we mirror who he is to the world. And, and in our very essence as a married couple, in our membership to one another, Paul is going to say that also is preaching a sermon to the world about Christ. Here's what he says. He says, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. And he's like literally like the way that you care for yourself and like literally your physical body. Hopefully you wash it and stuff, you know. Like, as you care for yourself, you certainly nourish it, right? Amen. Praise God. As you care for your body, 
as you prioritize your physical needs, as you prioritize yourself, um, you ought to love your wives. Notice this, because he who loves his wife is loving himself. There's, there's a mystery here, because in marriage, you've become one. No one ever hated his own flesh. No one ever fasted because they were like, I just love to fast. I just feel like fasting. It's so fun, all right? But, but naturally, we nourish and we cherish our flesh. The word there, nourish, is, is feed. The word there, cherish, literally means to clothe. We warm our flesh, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members, look at this, of his body. Isn't that wild? Of his flesh and of his bones. That's, that's remarkable. We as the church, we, as, we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So Paul speaks of this incredible mystery, how through marriage, husband and wife, they've become one, right? You're members now of one another. Marriage isn't nothing. It's the joining together of two individuals, something that God does, actually, according to Jesus. What God brings together, let not man separate. Marriage is two becoming one, right? One bed, one meal, sometimes one plate. If you're being, if you're feeling kind, there's one house, there's one bank account, there's one body joined together to where now your losses are my losses. My wins are your wins. We're one. Obviously, this is embodied in children. (laughs) Children resemble the oneness of a mom and dad. That's what they're intended to reflect. And what's really cool here is is Paul is saying that just as a wife, as, as, you know, Adam said, you are bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Just as a wife and husband are, are one members of one another, he's saying that this is a mirror of a greater reality, that you and I, get this, in Christ, are joined to him as one. Think about that for a second. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, this is why we should flee sexual immorality. Because we're one with Christ, we've been joined with him. And we don't want to join Christ to sin. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. In Christ, just as a husband and wife are one, through salvation, through the work of the gospel, you and I are one with Jesus. Do you see that there's an illustration here about Jesus caring for his body? This is amazing. And the Bible does this. Like The Bible um, beautifully interweaves itself together. Because there's a single author of scripture. And, and, and so, it's interesting. Two words there, nourishes and cherishes. Jesus in Matthew 6 says, don't worry about what you eat and what you wear. Why? Because you belong to Jesus is the idea here. <laughs> and just as a dude is going to nourish himself and clothe himself... God is going to take care of you. You belong to him. See, there's a thread running all throughout scripture communicating the relationship of God to his people. Don't worry about what you'll eat. Don't worry about what you'll wear. We're united together with him. And lastly, as we prepare now to come to the the Lord's table, Paul closes with this idea of this all being a great mystery. There's this reflection and relationship of a husband to his wife that at its best, it is a sermon, it's preaching a message to the world about who God is and what he's like. Even in the very union of a husband and wife, there is a picture of God's union with his people. And just as a husband is to care for his wife, this pictures how Christ cares even for his church. 
He provides for our every need. And then Paul wraps this all up and he says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. Paul says this, this is a great, in the Greek, mysterion. Actually, in the Greek, it's a mega mysterion. It's a great mystery. This idea of a husband and wife being one, that idea, like that being a reality that cannot be separated. He says, but I speak concerning the inseparable union of Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. There's a mystery that's at work here. But the word mystery is not just this unsolvable Sherlock Holmes situation. The word mystery here means something that cannot that, that, that can be known, but it will not be known without revelation. It's a hidden reality that Paul is saying is now visible ultimately in Christ. That at the end of the day, there's a greater relationship that every person in this room was created for, and all marriage does is point to it. That just as a husband leaves his home to be joined to his wife, the gospel communicates that Jesus left his home. That Christ saw you and I in our state, in our condition, and he bridged the gap with his very presence across the great divide to come where we are, to save us, to give himself sacrificially, to go to a cross to bear our sin, to bear our shame, to substitute his own life for ours, listen, so that we could be his forever. This is what Paul is saying marriage ultimately points to. It's, it's the relationship, listen, that ought to be at the very center of every individual's life, married or not. And that's where we come back to this morning as, as we transition to a time of, of communion. We come to this, this uh, shadow of a greater wedding feast to come where we come to the Lord's table and we remember that the ultimate source of my satisfaction, the ultimate fuel for my life is my relationship with God that has been secured through his son, Jesus. And so I wonder today, um, have you been settling for shadows? And, and why settle for a shadow when you have access to the substance? And there's something about coming to that substance that informs every other area of life. So let me pray for us and then we'll enter into this time. Lord, we, we thank you again for the moments we've had here in your presence, through your word. As we prayed in the beginning, we, we thank you, God, for your faithfulness to speak to us through your word. God, ultimately, um, that's why we've gathered here is, is to leave not so much fixed or focused on man's words, but on your words. So we just humble ourselves under that this morning, knowing that you're a great leader. You're a leader that gives yourself for your people. You've given yourself for us. You're the substance we're longing for. So we invite you, Jesus, to fill our hearts this morning, to use the, this moment now as we come before you, as we come to the table to commune with you, reflecting on your love for us and your sacrifice we pray that there would be a greater level of satisfaction found in you this morning. That we would learn to live fully from not just our knowledge about you, but our relationship with you. 
And, and God, sometimes the most gracious thing that you can do is expose us to imperfect relationships, imperfect marriages, failed relationships. We, we all have our own history and even present of this. But God, sometimes this is the most gracious thing that you can do is allow that brokenness to lead us to something greater. And so we look to you this morning. We say, Jesus, we want you to be back at the center of our lives. We pray now that we could replace you there.